are listening to ComedySlamRadio.com. From our studios to the world, we bring you the finest in quality entertainment. So pop some popcorn, grab a smooch buddy, and settle in for another fine show from ComedySlamRadio.com. Thank you for tuning in to the Let's Be Frank show on ComedySlamRadio.com where we bring you national touring and celebrity comedian interviews. Follow us on Twitter at Let's Be Frank Show. And if you miss our live broadcast, you can find us on Stitcher Radio and iTunes at Let's Be Frank's Podcast. And please contact us with any questions or information about advertising and sponsoring at Let's Be Frank with Dave Frank at Yahoo.com. Good evening and welcome to the Let's Be Frank Show. This week, we have a very great and interesting comedian, Dan Ninen. And not only is Dan Ninen a great comedian, but he's 100% clean. And I don't mean that he showers, but I'm sure he does. But unlike most comedians now, he's always clean, very professional. And it's, it's just rare today to find a comic that stays clean and doesn't really ever go blue. So, Dan, thank you for joining the show. How are you doing tonight? Hey, it's fantastic. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, it's uh, wonderful to be here, and I appreciate it very much. Uh, it's, it's my pleasure to have you on. Uh, I think I've only had two or three true, uh, real clean comics that have come on. Uh, and, you know, we had uh, Tom Ryan and Tom Driesen, some of the cleanest comics out there, like yourself. Oh, Tom Driesen's fantastic. I've, I actually did an event with him in, in L.A., and he's... Uh, He's an amazing, and he's done. I think he's been on the Tonight Show like fifty times or something. He's he, incredible. He has. He's actually, uh, he's the only person that's ever been able to uh, host the Tonight Show when David Letterman wasn't there. So I guess David Letterman was out with Shingles one time, and Tom got to fill his shoes, which is a great honor, let alone a great experience. I know. I did a. I now I remember the show was called Right to Laugh. It was a right wing comedy show, and you know, Tom's very right wing and I'm kind of middle of the road. So I do both right wing and left wing shows. And so it was great to hear his perspective and it was, it was fantastic. I, I agree a hundred percent. And and I was listening to a bunch of your comedy and some of the different things that you've done on your YouTube channel. And you talk a lot uh, about your family, about the fact that you're half Indian and half uh, Japanese uh, and it's pretty interesting the way you joke about it and you pick on your father and your mom. And, you know, it's, I, I found that real interesting. It's something that I haven't, I mean to tap into my own family experiences, but I haven't found a way to do it that my family's not going to disown me yet. Right. Well, people ask me if my parents are upset about the fact that I'm joking about them. They wrote my material. <laughs> I mean, those are, those are real quotes. <laughs> I know. I, I like how you were saying, uh, what was it that you had seen the the cow grazing, and you both you? That's you, actually a true story. I, That's I a bet. true story. <laughs> go ahead and tell everybody that because it's, I th I think it's funny. I mean, it's it'll it'll go great over radio. I think. Well, this, this it's true. We were driving to the airport actually here in D.C. where my parents live, and we saw these cows grazing in a field and so my dad says you know oh well there's a word that can have a lot of different meanings graze for example cows can graze and then i said or you can be grazed by a bullet especially if you're hanging out with vice president cheney 
And then my mom, who's Japanese, says, or it's a kind of donut. <laughs> and she couldn't, she couldn't distinguish between, you know, the L and the R. Raise donuts. I, I just wish I had... I wish I had a hundred jokes like that because that that's just it's just so funny and and it's true. <laughs> it, it is and and it's funny and it, and it's good that you can pick on your family and the accents and want it go over it be clean and not get disowned. <laughs> I know. So so they they're uh, quite proud of me. They came to see me at the Kennedy Center last year and there were two thousand people there. It was amazing. They were quite quite proud. Yeah, and, and you've consistently played in front of some very large audiences and in front of a lot of, you know, Fortune 500 companies as a corporate comedian, which I think is probably has a lot to do with how clean of an act that you maintain no matter what topic you talk about. And, and three months ago, the president, so if you, if you go to YouTube and you search for my last name, Nainan, which is N-A-I-N-A-N and Obama, You'll actually see him commenting on me. The, the thing about it is, you know, I, I've never actually thought of myself as particularly a great comic, but the thing that gets me in front of all of those audiences and charity galas and cruise ships and and corporate events and so on is is staying away from the profanity. And it's just such a such a simple thing, and yet so many comedians don't know how to do that, and, and that they could expand their income a hundred, maybe a thousand fold by doing so, and yet. So many people seem to have a hard time doing that. Did you ever... So let, let's take it back to when you first started comedy. When you first got to your first open mic, were, were you already being clean, or did you start off, like everybody else, a little blue and not knowing where they were going to go? The first time I ever did comedy, believe it or not, was not an open mic. It was I took a class with Judy Carter out on the West Coast, I was working at Intel, and she was offering a class at, in San Francisco. So once a week for, I think it was six or eight weeks, I drove up to San Francisco on, on a Saturday and, and took her class. And the, she, she also had said in that class, you know, if you work clean, that you'll work so many more places. And instead of having to work in a club for $25 and having to, you know, you can't even get a free drink, right. you can – perform in corporations for $10,000 and they'll fly you first class. And for some reason that didn't really register with me at that time. But, but now looking back on that, I realized that that some of the most amazing advice I'd ever gotten. I did do, I'm just trying to think, I did a couple of, in, in my first set, which was at the punchline at the kind of, I guess you could call it the graduation of the comedy class. I, I had a couple of things that were off color, but by and large it was totally clean. And then, of course, what really changed things was when I met Jerry Seinfeld right after I, I started doing this. And I asked him for advice. He, he said, you should work clean. You will work everywhere. And and that's kind of what really inspired me to, to do just nothing even remotely blue. And, and it worked. And, and it does work. It makes a lot of sense. Um, and, you know, it's the exact same advice that Tom Driesen gave. It's the same advice what Judy Carter gave or that Judy Carter gave when she when she called into the show a few weeks back. Um, it seems to be a popular theme. I don't think that I'm a, a dirty comic myself. Uh, I think if I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to talk about the male or female anatomy, I normally use jokingly terms, or I may say the word pecker as opposed to something that's a four-letter word, or just because, you know, I want to be invited back and I'm still, you know, I might be just, 
maybe a, a, sli- a smidge of budge being an uh, open micer myself. You know, I'm to the point where I get invited to do some guest pets. I'm sorry, guest sets and some MC work at a lot of the local clubs now, which is a, you know, I'm just about two years in. So I think timing wise, it's starting to pick up and happen for me. It's a little slow of a process. Where, where are you located? You're in, uh, we're in the Tampa Bay, Florida area. Yeah, that's, that's a great area for comedy. And of course I love that area. It's fantastic. And I've done a few shows there. The, the only slight disadvantage you might have is that you, you don't, there aren't just as many venues as you would have in say as in New York or LA. And, and that's, what's so wonderful about being in New York or LA, especially in New York because you, you can walk around and do all these shows and not even have to drive anywhere. And, and, there are literally probably hundreds of places you can perform, so you get to develop a lot faster. But going back to the, the clean thing, and there's different levels of clean, like there's television clean, and then uh, there's also corporate clean, which is a completely different level. And so you you really have to, there's, there's a totally different level of, of, of cleanliness. There's a lot of stuff that you could do on television that absolutely would not be acceptable in a corporate environment. Right. Now, when did when after you graduated her class with Judy, and you started doing comedy, did you did you start off in the clubs, and work? Obviously, I would think you started off in the clubs and worked your way up to theaters and corporate events. How did that progression go for you? Well, what happened was when I took the class. Then <laughs> it's really interesting what happened. I I did that final exam, which was a packed house at the Punchline in San Francisco and that went really, really well and I just just killed it and she had put me in a really good spot towards the end as opposed to being early and taking the bullet. And I was fortunate enough to to get the tape and I can't tell you how important it is to just tape everything you do because having that tape is what really changed my life because they heard about me taking the class at Intel and then they watched the tape and they really, really liked it. And I happened to be out at the CES show in Las Vegas. And they said, hey, why don't you perform tonight at the team dinner? And the team dinner was kind of like the culmination of, of the convention for you know, Intel, the huge booth. Uh, you know, we had about 250 people out there. So it's the last night of the convention and I'm on the top floor of the Riviera in front of 250 Intel employees. And I did my impressions of, of Andy Grove, the chairman, which I wrote this whole act about him. And he's a very, very strong-willed, kind of this real abrupt guy with a real thick Hungarian accent. And they were just dying. And then someone came up to me and said, hey, can you do this at the annual sales conference for 2,500 Intel salespeople from around the world? And I was like, oh, my God, that's, that's terrifying. But at the same time, I said, I have to do it. I've got to do this. So it was Monday morning, and at 8 o'clock in the San Francisco Hilton and nobody had been drinking, you know, which is a tough crowd. <laughs> 2,500 salespeople from, you know, places like India and, you know, Argentina and, and France. I mean, all the whole international sales force. And I just did the impressions of Grove. I did impressions of Clinton and some Intel jokes and they were just dying. They were pounding on tables and I got this huge just roar and, I was so terrified because it was my third performance ever and my left leg was literally shaking behind the podium. And then after I got off stage, all these people came up to me and, and 
people who didn't know me in the company, they said, hey, you know, you're not really an Intel employee, but you were hired as a professional comedian to pretend you're an Intel employee, right? Because what we did is we made it seem as if something had gone wrong with one of my onstage demonstrations. And, and, you know, I said, well, while we get this fixed, let me tell you some jokes. And so they all assumed I was a professional comedian, and that's when I kind of had the inkling that I could do this for a living. Nice. And because, you know, 2,500 people on my third show. And then after that, I think I did one club out there, Rooster Teeth Feathers, and, you know, I made this video package and all this promo, and I just completely, utterly, and totally bombed. And I had done a few Intel events after that 2,500 salespeople, and I was, you know, thinking, oh, I'm so funny, I'm so great. And, you know, this is something that happens to every comedian is you'll do five or ten great shows, and then you'll run into this thing where you you completely bomb, and, and you're, you just really want to quit because it's so humiliating. Fortunately, I didn't quit. I got promoted to a job in New York that was home-based. Uh, I was a two levels higher. And since it was home-based, I had more time. And then I did that for a year, and I really didn't like it. And I decided to leave and pursue comedy full-time. And that's how I got started in New York. And what really helped in New York, the one thing that helped and I think has been the most helpful thing in my career was to continue taking a comedy class, this time with Steve Rosenfield at the American Comedy Institute. And I've, you know, I still take that class. In fact, I'm going to take it next week. When I'm in New York, when I'm around and I'm off the road, I go to that class every single time that I can because it's, it's seriously, it's been the most helpful thing for my career and Steve is not a comedian. He's a uh, just a teacher. He's a producer and director. Not a producer. I'm sorry. He's a director. He, he got a directing degree at Stanford. And so he's not afraid, as he says, he's not afraid to give away any material. So he'll make these suggestions. He's helped me write probably a quarter of my jokes come from him. And, and he'll add something and you know, make it much funnier. And so I did some clubs in New York, and then it was kind of, a quick progression to doing a bunch of Indian shows. And then from there I met Russell Peters and that's kind of when things really took off was, was working with Russell. That's great. Now you say you go to the, to the same uh, school or the same class. Does he teach the class differently or it's a great reminder? Or I guess when you go back, it's just like your way of working out jokes with somebody. What it is is, it's like Jerry Seinfeld said, you know, comedy is one of the few things where you can only, only, I mean, has to be done in front of an audience. You can't, you can't do it at home. And, you know, you write your stuff alone and then you go and perform it in front of an audience. And as, as you probably know, you know, Chris Rock or Jerry Seinfeld or, or every comedian from the bottom uh, to the top, they have to perform at clubs and try this stuff out, try out their material. And sometimes you'll see, say, Jerry Seinfeld show up and, some of his stuff doesn't work, and people will go, oh, my goodness, it's not that funny. But see, he's, it's like the gym. He's trying out new stuff. This class gives me the opportunity to try out new stuff in front of a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed people who are doing comedy for the first time who are really positive and who are a much better reflection of a cross-section of an American audience. Now, here's the problem if you go to an open mic. There's a few problems with the open mic. You have a bunch of bitter, jaded comedians who've never gone anywhere, who are purposely not going to laugh. They're, they're people whose sense of humor is different from the average public mem- member of the public. A lot of them are bent over their notebooks and working on their own stuff, and they're not even listening to you. And as the night progresses, each 
comedian performs and then they leave immediately. So if you're towards the end, it's like you have a, a nearly empty room you're performing to. So performing for open mics, it just doesn't give you a, a good enough indication of what the public will find funny. And that's what I love about this class. And that's, that's very true. And although I guess I don't actually go to a class, but normally every Sunday, uh, me and a group of comedians, which is led by one of a, a great local comedian who traveled all around the country for years, uh, Steve Eric, and he meets up with us at this one local club. It's Coconuts in Clearwater. And on Sundays, a group of us open micers or young comedians will come in and we'll share some of the things that we're working on. And he'll talk to him about us and tell us most of the time it's how to shorten the jokes up and how to get to the point a little bit quicker because right now we're still yeah. working in clubs. So, you you know, you got to do your setup, setup, punchline, punchline. You don't have that time to tell, you don't always have the time to tell the long winded story yet. Cause you know, you're not that popular name they're here. They're there to laugh. They're not there just to see you where if you're booking exactly. a venue. Yeah. Like when you book a venue, they're there to see you. So you have that time, you know, with 1500 people that are just there to see Dan to tell a little bit of the story and engage with the audience a little bit more, which is, you know, it's where everybody hopes to get to. But so now let me ask you, when you're at Coconuts on a Sunday, are there what I call civilians, or is it all comedians? It's actually all comedians. The room is pretty empty. I'd say normally there's anywhere between four and ten people there. And we'll literally all oh, okay. break out one or two jokes that we're working on. And he'll, you know, he's taught me different ways to write, how to set up the jokes, how to remember jokes better, um, you know. And it's not just him, it's everybody that's there. You know, there's a group of people, Paul Olin, and, you know, there's other comedians that'll come in that aren't there every week. But Steve's there every week, and, I mean, he's helped so many great comedians in the past that have gone on to do great things, and he just enjoys helping people with it when it comes to that. So I've actually haven't ever taken a full-blown comedy class, although I have thought about that might be the next level that I go into. Um, I'm just not, I just haven't done it yet. I think I've gotten so wrapped up in this show because the show has taken off so well and has thousands of listeners and fantastic. Thank you. And it takes a lot of time to set up the shows and, you know, I'm constantly out searching for new guests that are coming in. I know in the next couple of weeks we have, uh, Jay Wendell Walker, who has probably been doing comedy a little over 50 years. Uh, Josh, yeah, Josh Sneed, who's pretty popular right now, uh, and a lot of great people that have called in in the past, and you know, I try to keep in contact with them. It, the whole process has been interesting, but sometimes I find I get a little bit caught up in the in the setup and the marketing for the program that I do in my comedy. I'm kind of torn which one I like better. Well, let me ask you: Is there a class offered in your area? Uh, I think at the Tampa Improv, sometimes they have some comedians do it. It's never the same comedian. Sometimes it's some of the local comedians. Uh, there's a great local comedian, Steve Laszlo, who has been he's taught, taught classes there. Um, there's been a few different comedians that have done some national touring stuff that have also gone there. But it's only at the Improv that I think there's been a class offered. Right. Yeah, I would I would highly recommend it. I, the the only downside of that is if you have 
a comedian teaching it, then you know, then you have to ask yourself, well, you know, why is this comedian teaching this class instead of, you know, making money working? That's kind of what I I like about Steve's class, and you know, he's not a comedian, he's never done comedy, although I think he'd be hilarious. But and and actually, he has a one-week class for people from out of town, and and it's kind of a compressed class that takes place for a week, and people come from all over the world for that, and I highly recommend that if you can make it up to New York for a week. The the only thing is, I've recommended so many people, and that cheap bastard doesn't give me anything. I said, hey, can you give me a finder's fee or some free class? You know, and he just, I mean, I just, it makes me so mad because I've recommended so many people, but, you know, the reason I do recommend him is he's really good, and, and he's helped some friends of mine a lot, and, of course, he's helped me, and, and so I would... If you can make it to New York and, and take his one-week class, I just, uh, I mean, I can't say enough good things about him because he, he teaches you a lot of things that, see, I, I see even more experienced comedians do make all the mistakes, like there's one in particular I can think of was pretty well-known, and she'll blame the crowd if they don't laugh. She goes, okay, well, you know, you didn't like that one, so let me finish with this one, and then she'll keep going, and she'll go over the light, and he, he'll teach you that there's a lot of things that you shouldn't do as a comedian, like say, for example, a lot of, a lot of people say, that's my time. And he goes, no, 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 don't say that because then it's, it's making it seem as if you don't really want to be up there. And he, he tells you it's all about joyous communication. So you want to come up with a much better closer. And that's what every other comedian says. Oh, that's my time. And, and, you know, um, and he'll say, don't apologize, you know, and, and he, he just full of a million tips like that. So what I get out of the class is, I mean, the, the tips, you know, I've heard a lot of them before, but he's always got new ones, but it's more really what it's about is, is seeing how much the class, you know, my fellow class members laugh because we all perform, and then getting Steve's tips and, and I guess his toppers that he gives me, which are really just, I don't know, he's just got a real good sense of what people will laugh at and what they won't laugh at. Well, if you know how to communicate and read people, and apparently that's what he's got, you know, that's a, being able to read people and know how to communicate them and, judge off of their reactions to what you're saying it's, it's yeah like, it's you know it's really it, it sounds difficult but you know a lot of it is just timing and, and you know just being able to, it's mathematical i mean you know did they laugh at this joke and if so how much did they laugh right mm-hmm. and and you listen to the tape he makes us tape everything you know and you listen to the laugh and then you know which five jokes out of my 25 did they laugh at the most? Well, those are the ones that I should probably, you know, take and do in clubs and theaters, right? And and so it's very mathematical, and there's a lot of rhythm and timing, and people always say, oh, your timing is amazing, your timing is amazing. Well, what Steve teaches us is, you know, it's, it's a simple matter of, of just listening. You know, the audience laughs, you wait until they're done laughing, then you you talk again, then you wait while they laugh again. And he says, he calls it a conversation, you know, between you and the audience. You talk, they laugh, you talk, they laugh. And some comedians just don't understand. You have to wait until they finish laughing. And he'll say, don't step on their laughs. Don't talk while they're still laughing. And some comedians don't understand that. And, and he's like, wait a minute, what are you doing? This is, this is what we're here for. Is, you know, this is our objective is to get them to laugh. And if you step on that, if you talk while they're laughing, you're going to cut their laughter off. It's like, why would you want to do that? Exactly. They're, and I've watched it with your, and when I watched some of your shows today, um, just as a refresher, um, I watched where you would tell your joke, and there, you, you might be standing there for 10 or 15 seconds before they stop laughing, and you're just smiling and waiting, where a lot of people are like, what am I supposed to do now? And 
wow, they're, you know, and they do. They cut off the laughter because they're in a rush to do their material. I know. There, there was one guy who was really funny, this guy from New Jersey uh, in the class, and he kept just, he would go on without literally stopping the whole time. And Steve says, you know, you've got to hold for your laughs. You've got to hold. And it was really funny material. And at the class, the 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 graduation, you know, the show, this was at Caroline's, I'll never forget. He brought something like, I don't know, 150 people came just to see him. On It was incredible, the, the audience he drew. And for for six minutes, all he did was talk straight, never gave anyone any time to laugh, and they gave him like a cheer at the end, and that was it. And and no one ever laughed during the whole thing because he kept talking like it was the most it was the most bizarre thing I'd ever seen a comedian do. <laughs> he he never gave them their opportunity to laugh, and, and it's funny, right? And you have to breathe. It's funny because uh, Tom Driesen, I had asked him the first time he ever went on stage, and it was when he went on as a duo. Uh, with Tim and Tom, and he said the first time they walked in to do a show, they went up, and they never shut up. They kept talking and talking and talking, and when they got off the stage, they went to the club manager and said, how did I do? And the guy said, well, you never stopped talking for me to have an opportunity to laugh. You just never slowed down. And that's, you know, the next. so he said the next night they slowed down. They were a little less nervous. They got more laughs, but they had to learn how to slow down and not step on the laughter. And that's even something that I had to learn on the show. And it was the first time I realized that I was doing it pretty well was uh, when I interviewed Jackie Mason. And he paid oh, me a wow. com- he had paid me a compliment. He goes, you know, you, he said, you said you're also a comedian and you're doing the podcast. And he goes, and you're not even interrupting me. And he goes, that's it's a great sign of an interviewer because. Most comedians want to hear themselves talk. They want to be in the limelight. <laughs> this is true. And this whole show, although it's my show, let's be frank with Dave Frank, it's really about me asking you a question or talking to you, or it's really just like having a conversation. And I pause your talk, and there's times I notice when I have guests in the audience or guests in the room with me that they'll actually over-talk the comedian that's calling in or over-talk each other and, I got to remind people, hey, you know, when when the other person's talking, don't talk because you cut each other off and people can get a little bit confused. Yeah, that's one thing that, you know, I'm trying to do myself is that, it, you know, it's so important to when you're having a conversation with someone, you know, try not to talk longer than 20 seconds because people's minds wander. Speaking of Jackie Mason, I was in Miami, Miami Beach and then South Beach and I was walking along and I saw him at a table sitting with some other guy, and I thought, oh, my goodness, you're Jackie Mason and blah, blah, blah. And he said, hey, sit down and have a cup of coffee. He was so nice. I sat with him for like half an hour. And one one thing that, going back to, to slowing down, my teacher says this a lot, is you have to slow down. And I, I tend to talk really fast in general, and he says, if you want to slow down on stage, you have to slow down in real life. And I, I talk fast, and when I get on stage, I swear, I... I just have to think to myself, go slower, go slower. And still some people will tell me, man, you were talking really fast. And one thing that you learn is if you talk slower, number one, my teacher says slow is funny and loud is funny. And you can tell a new comedian because they talk really fast and they're not really talking loudly. And if you slow down, what will happen is you'll have a joke and there'll be like one or two laughs. And if you slow down, you'll realize there are other jokes or there are other laughs 
along the way. And so you could have, uh, say, set up punchline, whatever, that would have had only two laughs maybe. And then if you slow down and you hear them laughing, it'll be five or six, right? And and that is amazing because I've I've Steve has shown me that, that if you slow down and you and you you're slower, then you'll actually get more laughs as people laugh along the way. And that that one story I told you about the Gray's Donut, you know that was only a big laugh at the end, but I realized there were four or five laughs inside now that I, I get which I didn't have before. And the other thing I want to say is that Chris Rock said, you know, when he felt himself bombing, that you know, most people would speed up. He says, you've got to slow down. He says, if he feels himself bombing, he will purposely slow down because if, if you're not getting laughs, then you get nervous and you'll start to speed up and then you'll speed up. This is what happened the time I bombed at Rooster Teeth Feathers way back when, as I kept getting faster and faster. And then the faster you go, people can't understand you. They laugh less. You get more and more nervous and then you eventually collapse. And I mean, I left the stage early because I was doing so poorly. So one thing is just, as Chris Rock says, if you feel yourself bombing, just slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down, and it's great advice. I would agree. Uh, I, I've caught myself where I've had a joke that bombed, and uh, so what I've done is I've picked on myself a little bit where, I, where I'm like, okay, I guess I won't be telling that joke next week, or you know, I guess that was only, was only funny to me, and then the audience will laugh along with that part, and I move on past it. Bomb lines are fantastic, and if you can come up with funny bomb lines, uh, it, is, it can actually be funnier than, than some of the jokes. <laughs> it's awesome. I joke around a lot about, um, you know, most of my comedy is self-deprecating humor. Uh, I'm a pretty heavy set guy. I go on stage as Fat Davey, and I tell a bunch of fat jokes. And, and I comment a lot when I talk to other comedians, and they talk about their acts and I look, a lot of people, I think, do a, a smarter brand of comedy than I do. Uh, I think when you tell a fat joke, it kind of goes, you know, it, it, it's it's multicultural, it's everything, because, you know, it doesn't matter what race, what country, where you're from, or everybody has a fat guy in their family, or, you know, it's something for me that everybody can relate to. And I think because I've always pretty much done well with it, it's been hard for me to branch off into talking more about my family or into like my daily experiences in life, which, which I've done a little bit, but the fat jokes have just always, you know, for the most part, I've never really had a rough time with them. So you find that niche and you kind of like to stick to it. And I have to force myself to, to go past that still. Well, I, I agree. You know, the thing that I think people really like in a comedian is being vulnerable. And if you can, if you can, be self-deprecating and, and you, you show your vulnerability. I think that's a great thing. I, you know, if you look at comedians in general, I, I mean, there's certainly some exceptionally, I guess, good-looking model types, but by and large, if you look at comedians, you know, we're not, you know, we're not like the best-looking people in the crowd. And, and I, I think, I think people can relate to someone who is not necessarily, you know, someone who looks like a model or a pretty boy or a, you know, a beautiful girl. I, I just, right. I just, Think of there are exceptions again. I mean, Daniel Tosh is a pretty good-looking guy, but by and large, I just think comedians. You know, we, we have some sort of flaw, and um, if you can be self-deprecating and vulnerable, I think that's a great thing. You know, look at John Panette. I mean, his his funniest stuff is is fat jokes. You know, about right. the buffet and all that. I mean, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you can do that, that's great. If you can get laughs. Yeah, and there's a uh, 
even Dan Whitney, or uh, as more more affectionately known, Larry the Cable Guy, a lot of self-deprecating humor about himself and his family, and he sure as heck isn't a isn't a Picasso. Well, maybe he is more of a Picasso picture, a little bit weird and funkily drawn because he's not a pretty guy on stage. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's a little heavy, and and you know, and he, he what he's done with that is is amazing, and you know. I have to say that there's a lot of people who are so down on Larry the Cable Guy and, and, and Dane Cook and Russell Peters and Carrot Top and, and all of these other comedians. But, you know, what they don't understand is if the com- comedy gets expanded, comedians like Dane Cook or whatever, they bring comedy to a giant audience, and that helps all of us. It's like a rising tide lifts all boats. Right. Yeah, I've I've never had, like, a, a comedian that I say, oh, I don't like them or or I don't like what they do because um, I'm just starting to become a, you know, a student of comedy. I mean, you got to give credit to anybody who's willing to get up there and be vulnerable on stage, whether you like their brand of comedy or not. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't, when you say they get a rough time, I don't know if you mean which, what you mean exactly. I don't know if people, I've never heard anybody really say anything negative to me about, some of those people, I, I have heard people knock on uh, Dane Cook, actually, I guess, but I, sometimes I think it's a little bit out of jealousy. I mean, it's just they're huge. I mean, how do you not? I don't see how you just can't love them and enjoy their comedy, even when they make goofy mistakes. I mean, look at in the news last week, uh, Dane Cook took a beating last week because of a joke he did in uh, about the Colorado incident. So you are right with that. I guess I have seen some crazy stuff out there. Well, I think it, you'll find as you get more into comedy, the negativity comes from other comedians. There's, there's so much negative, like hatred towards Larry the Cable Guy, and but it's so funny because see, most of the people I think you interview are successful at this, and so they're not going to really be that type of person. But the, the, these people who just rip on Dane Cook and Larry the Cable Guy, and I mean me, and I'm not even that well known, but they don't. See the thing of it is, they all have one thing in common. They're not working comedians. They don't. They don't make any money doing this. I mean, <clears throat> I have three uh, real haters that that are you know, they just really they just really hate me and they say my comedy is, it's been done before and it's hacky and whatever and and they're just they're posting negative stuff about me. But the thing is, is if you add up all of the money that the three of them have made in their entire careers, uh, I can make more in one show than the three of them have made in in a collective. 25 years of doing comedy and so you'll see all these people just ripping on Dane Cook and Larry the Cable Guy and saying they shouldn't be doing that kind of comedy or, or Carrot Top because he uses props or guitar comics and, and the thing is it's, it's so funny it's like it's like telling an artist you know you shouldn't do country music or you shouldn't do right. rap or, or you shouldn't do classical it just there's a you'll find this to be true there's just so much negativity especially in New York and LA amongst all these You'll find that as you get into the career, into the business more. It's yeah. really sad. And I know you say if I ever make it up to New York to, to tech, check out that one class, but oddly I do get up to New York once or twice a year because that's where I'm originally from. I came down to Florida about five oh, cool. years, about five years ago. Thank you. But I, I never even, you know, you'll all joke around and say I want to have a radio show and I want to be in movies, but I never really thought about being a comedian or anything it was just something I tried a couple of years ago. I was turning 38 and I said, what am I going to do to, you know, to like surprise myself? It was like my own little midlife crisis. I said, what am I going to do to change my life? And I decided I was going to 
try to get on stage and be a comic because I'd been in sales for, at that time, 23 years on commission, and I felt I knew how to read people and talk to people and feed off of their body language, and I thought that would be the next step. And I, not only did I think it would help me with sales, but I thought it would help me with the ability to move up ladders corporately and public speaking because there's times that I get the opportunity to speak in front of a lot of the executives at you know some of the different companies that I've worked at, and I wanted to feel more confident in front of 50 or 60 or however many executives may be in a, a large or small meeting. I think that's a great idea. In fact, that's why I took comedy class in the first place is because I, my job at Intel was speaking in front of thousands of people doing technical demonstrations on stage with the CEO, and I was terrified of the public speaking. And that class, trust me, if you could do comedy, you will never be afraid of making a corporate presentation. And that is why I would recommend, even if you don't have any aspirations to do it as a career, I would recommend it to anybody who is afraid of speaking because so many jobs, there's so many jobs that would enhance your career if you could be better at public speaking. And I would highly, highly recommend it. And it'll help you get over the fear. And, and in general, you know, I think, you know, even if you don't really want to do it as a career, I think it's always great to do a lot of different things. Um, I've done a lot of research on this, and they said, you know, if you do everything, if you do the same thing every day, then your life just isn't really that remarkable. But if you do new things, I mean, I, I took a trapeze class the other day, which is something I always wanted to do in New York, and, you know, and I was afraid. My friend's like, oh, you're gay, and, you know, I said, well, I don't care what they think. And I mean, there's a new Van Halen song out this year, and, and one of my favorite lines from that is when Dave Lee Roth says, when was the last time you did something for the first time? And most people, just they, you know, they're just in a comfort zone. And, and, and so, you know, for you to take a class or, or to do comedy or, or, you know, ballet or something new, I think that's just that's something I would recommend for everyone. But, yeah, if you're in New York, you know, uh, look me up. Come take the class with me because it is, it is absolutely awesome. I highly recommend it. It's awesome. Uh, give out the name and the website for that guy in his class. So, because we do have a lot of young comedians that listen. Okay. Well, um, my first class was, you know, of course, was with uh, Judy Carter, and and she's wonderful, and and that was my first class. But the class that I've really got a lot out of, I, I guess, because I'm in New York more, right? And so, you know, I have more of a chance to take his class. It's ComedyInstitute.com. It's called the American Comedy Institute. And that that class, I mean, he is just just fantastic. I, I can't say enough good things about him. And again, all the success I have, I ascribe to his teaching and and trying out new material. And so, I, I highly recommend it. And and Judy Carter, you know, I can't take her class because I'm not in LA as much. But I've hired her for private consultation, and she's helped me come up with with some amazing stuff. She's awesome too. Yeah, I've talked to a couple. And of course, she has the books. Oh, yeah. She has some very popular books. Um, yeah. I've talked to other comedians uh, in the past who said they paid her, you know, and it's good money just to talk to them on the phone for an hour to go over different ideas and that whole, you know, just the whole premise of her class and run ideas by her. They just pay her for just as little as an hour. So it's pretty interesting how you can build your name up and be known for that and have such a drawing. I mean, because not only is she a great comedian, but she helps out others, and, you know, she probably gets a bad rap from some people because of the way she preaches uh, to do the corporate comedy and, you know, work 
she's been a big promoter of working corporate comedy and getting away from the clubs a little bit because the clubs can have a little bit of a negative vibe is what she says. You know, she's a hundred percent right. And, and I, I can't, you know, I can't understand someone who would criticize a lady for, for, for wanting you to make 10 to 15 to $25,000 a night instead of $25 a night. I mean, how can you criticize someone for who's trying to increase your income? It's like, it's like saying, you know, here's a broker who told me to buy Apple in 1990. You know, I hate that guy. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And I, <clears throat> what, I, what she said to me, what she said in her first class, as I said, you know, she said this to me, to all people in the class, her first class that I took years ago, you know, that, and I didn't really, you know, that didn't register. And I didn't really believe that, but you know, I hired her for two hours in person in New York and I went to the place where she was staying and we sat and, you know, we were kind of, I told her I want to do this, that, and the other. And then I told her that I'd really been bullied in school and I, and I want to talk about that. And then we just totally focused on that for like an hour and a half and she wrote this speech for me she said you know what you're not only going to make people laugh but when you're done i mean they're going to start crying when when you talk about what happened to you and then you're going to bring them back and then you're going to get them laughing again and at the end they're going to give you a stand you're going to get a standing ovation at every show and and she made me actually believe that and i i do believe it and it was incredible. I mean, I was, she had me like just tears rolling down my face. But, you know, it was it was it was really something that changed my life. And but she's right. You know, she she gives this example. She was on a cruise ship with two other comics, one of whom had just been on Letterman, and I think they were getting fifteen hundred each for performing on that ship for a week. And she was flown onto that ship, and she made twenty five thousand dollars for doing one night. Wow. And yeah, and someone who's teaching you how to do that—I I don't know how you can get upset at them for for wanting to increase your income. <laughs> I guess the only way you can get That's upset so at her is if you're not able to figure out how to do a corporate show, which, which kind of leads me to my next question for you, because obviously there's a lot of preparation that you have to do differently if you're going to work for some of the corporate clients that you have from the Royal Bank of Canada. Uh, Pfizer. I mean, there's there's a wealth of different companies that you've worked for, so you don't necessarily just go in there with the same material that you do with uh, a theater or a comedy club, or even a birthday or a wedding. You really have to prepare, and you know what steps do you take when you're preparing to go in front of a, uh, you know, whoever it is. I mean, you've been done, you've been in front of in front of the United Nations, Time Warner, uh, Toastmasters International, who are. How do you prepare individually for these shows? How long does it normally take you? Well, I have an admission here. You know, there's a lot of comedians who do what I do for corporations, and they will call up the company, and then they'll write, you know, spend hours and days and weeks writing all these custom jokes and this, that, and the other. And to be truthful, I have never really done that. What <laughs> my thing, when I'm going into a corporate event, what I'm doing is more of a pruning. Is I'm I'm saying, okay, this joke would be okay for television because it's clean, but it would not be appropriate for this corporation because people will get offended. So when I'm going into a corporation, what I've done is I've gone through my set and I've pruned away jokes that I know I can't do. And, uh, and, and that's really all it is for me. The custom writing is something that other comedians do, but it's just, you know what? I, I just haven't done it. And I've been able to get away without doing it because you see, since I know that these jokes will work for pretty much any audience, I also know that they'll work for the corporate audience, right? Right. So I can just go in and just 
Yeah, I can just edit in my brain and just say, okay, don't do that joke, don't do this joke, don't don't do that topper because it's a little bit, you know, a little bit on the edge. And and I've found that, you know, as I do more and more, I mean, in the beginning I would do stuff that people would say, whoa, whoa, you were really pushing it there. And so I just realized, you know, I know now, and I wish I'd known this then, I know now what jokes I can and cannot do in a corporate environment. So it's just a simple, I have so much material, it's a simple matter of pruning and Here's the other thing. For some reason, I don't know why comedians do this, but they will go and they'll pick on, say, the CEO or the guest of honor. Uh, I heard a story where Colin Quinn was booked at the uh, at, with Robert De Niro, uh, some huge party, and he kept asking, you know, hey, you got to lose some weight. You're so fat. And um, there was Bernie Mac who did an Obama campaign event in 2008, and, and you can look this up people were really offended because he was telling all this profanity and filthy jokes. And, you know, why do that? Because you have all this other material that will work fine. Why offend people with profanity? Why pick on the guest of honor? You know, just, just cut it because, you, you know, you're, if you're experienced enough, you have enough material that you can do stuff that's not offensive and not push the edge and then get hired back to do it again. So to answer your question, I, I really don't prepare that much other than pruning. All right. See, that's a little bit different than what Judy Carter had actually said, because she said she'd call up and speak to maybe the big boss's uh, administrative assistants and find out who, like, the uh, the company jokester is and, you know, pick on them a little bit. And she, incorpor- she had said that she incorporated that a little bit. So you pretty much do the opposite. You stick with your material, and that's that's pretty cool. I mean, it's different than what I thought corporate comedy is, and I guess, you know, it can be different for everybody. You go with what works. I was almost expecting you to say the amount of time that you spent and, you know, exactly what you said you didn't do. <laughs> well, you see, that's precisely why Judy Carter can make 25000 because she will go and, and put that time in. But over and above that, I mean, she's a great writer who can come up with stuff. And, and see, I'm just, I'm just not that great of a writer. I mean, you know, I, there's some comedians, I think 50% of comedians can sit at the computer and then go, okay, I'm going to come up with 50 jokes on this subject and do this for four hours. And the other half of the comedians are like me where, you know, we're talking with someone on the phone or walking down the street and we think of something or we're out to dinner with a lot of people and, you know, there's so many jokes that, you know, funny things people say, we write them down. And I'm much more of a spontaneous kind of, you know, on-the-fly comedian, and I, I'm just not that talented of a writer as she is and some others are. I have another friend who, he's so funny, John Domenico. he comes and he'll, he'll show up as Donald Trump and he puts these wigs on and Dr. Phil and, and he'll be, or Austin Powers, and he has all these characters and he spends weeks, like, working on this corporate, you know, and asking questions and, and you know what, just, my talent just does not lie there. <laughs> and I don't have the focus, I'm just ADD. But you do do some really great voiceovers. You, I mean, I've seen a lot of your, I mean, you did Arnold Schwarzenegger, George Bush, uh, a whole slew of different characters that you can do voiceovers for. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, but by and large, for these corporate things, you know, they, I pretty much, you know, I know what what they're going to laugh at, and I, can, I mean, I just did one in the UK for um, doing the Olympics. Uh, I was over there, and I, I had a chance to go to the Olympics, and it, you know, it was on someone else's dime. And it was a bunch of tire manufacturers, and you know, I mean, I could have gone in and written a bunch of custom tire jokes, and but you know, I thought, ah, nothing really comes to mind when, when it comes to tires, and I just, I guess I could have learned more about the business and whatever. But it's just easy just to go in and just 
say, okay, I know that these jokes are going to work, and I do them, and then they think, oh, this guy is hilarious. And this actually was um, someone who had hired me in Dubai, a tire concern, hired me in Dubai last January of 2011, and that went so well that he said, hey, can you come back and do this for a different group in the UK? I said, sure. And now they like that so much they want me to go to their next meeting, which is in Accra, Ghana, um, next year. So... And they pay for your trip. I guess over this is kind of like a lazy. What's that? And they pay for your trips to go over. They probably treat you like a king while you're there, and they give you a oh, large yeah. check. Yeah, Do- and and you know the the flights are first class. You know, I, now I can demand business class overseas, and you know I fly so much that on Delta, all all the flights domestically are upgraded. Uh, so I'm always in first and. The, the pay is incredible, and you get to see countries and do stuff and meet people. And again, I mean, there's all those comics who say, "Well, you know, you're a sellout, and you know, you shouldn't do corporate comedy." But you know, again, I, I don't understand that because you know you're maximizing your income, and, and that's the other thing. You know, I mean, Richard Pryor, he did he did kind of like the the Bill Cosby type of clean stuff, and then I think it was I don't know after five or ten years, one day he was in front of an audience. I think it was in somewhere in Vegas in front of 2,000 people, and he just said, I can't do this anymore. And then he went and he wrote the material that was much more true to himself and was profane and, and talked about his neighborhood and the prostitutes. And here's the thing, okay, if, if you're one of those purists who are like, well, you should never do corporate comedy, I would say this, you know, um, do the corporate stuff, stay clean, and then you can make a ton of money, and then you can have the leisure, you can have the leisure to you know, and and sit on a pile of money and write what you really is true to you, and then go out what you really want to do instead of starving for for decades. <laughs> All right, you got me curious. You keep talking about these piles of money, and you said that you know you've seen Judy Carter and told a story about her making as much as twenty five thousand dollars for one show. So we're gonna yep. get we're gonna get personal. We got to be frank. What's the highest you've been paid for one show? Can we ask that? Yeah, the most I got was fifteen thousand. And that was at the um, um, Mountain Winery out in the Bay Area. And, you know, the only reason I got that, and, th- and this is the other thing that's so important I want to tell people who think thinking about doing comedy or who are doing comedy. When someone calls you up and says they want to hire you, you have got to quote a really high price. There is a guy right here in D.C. Where, I, where I'm hanging out right now who is the funniest guy I've ever seen. He's I could never dream of being this funny. And he's funny off the cuff. with the He talks to the audience. And, and, I mean, example, he'll say, so what do you do for a living? He goes, I work at a nonprofit. And he'll go, oh, what, AOL? <laughs> you know, because AOL's <laughs> in the area, they're losing money. And, and he's so funny. And he told me the other day he got a call from a company. They had seen him at one of these $100 shows, and they asked him to come perform at this, this event. And the other performer was going to be the amazing Kreskin, who you remember as this ESP guy. And you know what he told him? He told him $500. I said, dude, you're out of your freaking mind. You should have said five thousand. You're 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 nuts. He goes, yeah, yeah, man. I was feeling bad because you know they when they said said five hundred, really? Well, for that much, can we get some other comedians as well? And I said, see, <laughs> the problem is you said five hundred, and now you can't raise your price. But if you say five thousand or ten thousand, then you know they could always chisel your price downwards, right? So the only reason I got that fifteen thousand is when they called me. I had a feeling because it was just really successful. Blade Network Server Company. I said my price is fifteen thousand, and they just said okay. Nice. And, and and sometimes I'll quote fifteen, and they'll say, well, our budget's more like five or ten, and I'll be like, um, 
Well, normally I would say no, but yeah, I'll say yes. And, and you know, the key is just to ask for it. Right. If you don't ask for it, you won't get it. And there's so many comedians in my position who would have said, you know, 500 or, or, or 200. And so they would have cost themselves, you know, $14,800. Right. So the key is to just, you know, let, let me tell you this one story. I know this, this is kind of drawing things out, but you may remember that Elliot Spitzer was caught with a prostitute a few years ago. You remember yep. that, that whole deal, right? Yes, I did. Yeah, I remember when they, inter- yeah, I remember when they interviewed this one prostitute and they said, she says, you know what? I'm not the best looking girl, but when I used to charge $200 for a half hour or whatever, men would treat me like absolute dirt. Now that I charge $2,000, they treat me like a queen and I make <laughs> 10 times more money. And again, I'm not the best looking girl in the world. And that really taught me a lot because the more you charge, the better they think you are. It's a real weird phenomenon, but it's like the old saying says, you get what you pay for. People really believe you're funnier if you have a higher price. And it's funny that you tie it to a prostitute because as comedians, we really are out there prostituting ourselves for laughs and for money. You know, we're just selling our wares. Ours are just verbal. You know, it's really all it is. Right, and some people pay, you know, 50 bucks for, and, and some people pay, you know, 3000 and and, you know, I mean, ultimately, I guess they're getting the same thing, right? Exactly. <laughs> <For a prostitute. laughs> so my advice is, you know, just charge more. And see, people, what happens is people get into that club mentality. They think, okay, I cannot make more than $25 on a weeknight and 75 on a weekend performing these, these uh, clubs in New York, unless, of course, I'm a big name. And and so they get into that mentality, I'm not worth that much more. But when someone calls you for a private event, you know, and, and this guy, he's not clean at all. I mean, you know, but yet he would have been fantastic for that event because, you know, they wanted him. And he said 500. And I said, dude, you, you could have you could have easily gotten 5,000, especially right. if they were hiring the, the great, the amazing Kreskin. There you go. Well, hey, Dan, we are down to just the last two or three minutes of the show. So I do want to have you do our little shameless plug sec, uh, sec segment. So go ahead and tell us where you're going to be at over the next few weeks because I know you're a pretty busy guy. Well, I just got off of a five-city tour. It was actually sponsored by Comedy Central, and that was in India, the Clean Comedy Fest. And then I did that corporate function in the U.K. with a <laughs> with a wedding in between in New Jersey. <laughs> uh, let's see now. I'm in. Well, see, here's the thing. I'm I'm not really in the position where I have to promote my shows because – there are events that are kind of happening anyway, and they've added me. So, like, I'm at a wedding in Houston, and then I'm on a cruise ship. But here's the thing. If people want to find out more, they can go to my site, which is comediandan.com. You know, my name is Dan, and I'm a comedian, so it's comediandan.com. You can also um, buy my book on Amazon. It's called How to Become a Full-Time Stand-Up Comedian. And you can find that just by by going to Amazon and typing in my last name, which is, it's pronounced Nainan, but it's spelled Nainan. It's N-A-I-N-A-N. Um, and uh, that's really all I have to promote, you know. And I would just tell people, you know, hey, um, stay clean, do clean comedy, quote, way more than you think you, you're worth or more than you can get. And above all else, take a class because it could change your life because it changed mine. All right. Well, thank you very much for calling in. I do want to give a quick shout-out to you. Uh, we are going to have, some, as I said, some great guests coming in. Next week, we're going to have uh, Jay Wendell Walker. Um, right after that, we're going to have Ward Smith. 
and Doby Maxwell. So those are going to be a couple of great shows coming up, and then Josh Schneed and a few other ones in the future. Um, as for my comedy, I'll be around at the Improv and some of the other open mics around the Tampa Bay in the next few weeks. So look for Fat Davey on stage and tune in next week for another great show. Thank you very much again, Dan, for calling in and spending some time with us. And we'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be in such great company like, like Jackie Mason and, and Tom Driesen and Judy Carter. I, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm humbled that you actually had me on. I, I thank you so kindly. No, thank you. And I think it was a great show. And a lot of things were taught, learned. And a lot of people who listen to the show are, are going to see that, you know, just the corporate comedy that I've gotten from other people where you have to learn so much about the business that you're doing the corporate event for just isn't true because if you're funny, they're there to laugh, not necessarily at themselves. You don't have to pick on their company. They just want to laugh. That's right. And now where can I hear uh, some of your are your shows archived? Can I hear them? Yeah. Uh, uh, it's always live. Them or? Yep. It's always live on Comedy Slam Radio on Monday nights, but you can go to Let's Be Frank's podcast, and that'll pull up either iTunes or Stitcher Radio, and you can find all of the shows there. So, again, it's Let's Be Frank's podcast on Stitcher Radio and on iTunes, and you'll be able to cool. find it. I'll probably email you over a link, and if you want to share that on your Facebook page and around, spread the word about how great Fat Davey and the Let's Be Frank show is. Cool. As a matter of fact, I, I do listen to a lot of podcasts, and I'm going to uh, go to my iPhone. I, I guess it'll it'll be a few days for this one to be up, right? Uh, this will probably be up by tomorrow at the latest, tomorrow night at the latest. Fantastic. I just found it. This is great. This is yeah. fantastic. You can see some of the last ones. And we always, unlike most podcasts, yeah. we go live, and then we just put them up live. So there's not a lot of touch-up work or prep or if there was a mistake on it, oh, yeah. you get to hear the mistakes, which makes us a little interesting. But we do got to yeah, wrap that's it awesome. up. Yeah, that's awesome. It's the same with the Leo Laporte. Have you ever heard of Leo Laporte's podcast, The Tech Guy? He is uh, like one of the biggest. His, his thing is listened to by like a million people a day. And he just leaves everything in, the commercials, and you can hear him eating his hamburger while they're playing some other promo. And he's talking to people who are visiting. I visited there. It, it's <laughs> totally seat of the path. That's great. This is great because when I pull up Let's Be Frank, it also has Frank Zappa comes up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you definitely got to do the Let's so Be Frank's company. podcast. But listen, thank you very much. We got another show waiting to come on with a couple of more great comedians. So, Dan, thank you very thank much you so for calling me. in, and we'll speak to you soon. I'll follow up with you during the week. Yes, sir. Thanks for your time. Talk All to right. you soon. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye, everybody, and we'll bye. speak to you next week. Thanks for listening in to the Let's Be Frank show on ComedySlamRadio.com. If you missed this show or would like to catch up on past shows, visit us on Stitcher Radio and iTunes at Let's Be Frank's Podcast. And have a great night. We'll see you next week. What was that? I'll tell you what that was. That was another fine show from ComedySlamRadio.com, where we put the .com in 